From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Emily G. from the Center for American Progress joins us to discuss the American Health Care Act recently passed by the House of Representatives. After that conversation, we replay an interview that I had earlier this year with Wake Forest Law Professor Michael Curtis about the Freedom of Religion Act that is currently before Congress. Last week, President Trump signed an executive order similar to the proposed legislation. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Last week, by a margin of four votes, the Republican majority in the House of Representatives passed legislation that would repeal the Affordable Care Act. Though action is still required in the Senate, the House vote is reflective of Republican campaign promises to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known by its more popular pejorative, Obamacare. But what is exactly contained in the House bill? And how would it potentially impact those on society's margins? To answer these questions and others is Emily G. G is the health economist for the health policy team at the Center for American Progress, located in Washington, D.C. Emily G., welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you for having me on today. Let's begin by you offering a uh, condensed explanation of the recently passed American Health Care Act. Sure. So what happened recently was that the House of Representatives passed a bill which would repeal key protections uh, that are provided to all of us who use the health care system or have health insurance uh, under the Affordable Care Act. Um, This bill is not law yet. It still needs to go to the Senate. It needs to be debated in the Senate, and the Senate needs to vote on it, um, and the President needs to sign it. After that, it will become law. Um, But we're, you know, I think precipitously close to a place where uh, we lose a lot of protections that are afforded to us by the Affordable Care Act, um, including the ability to go buy insurance based on simply our age and where we live rather than our health status. Uh, We would also lose um, guarantees that say that any health insurance we buy directly from an insurer has to include uh, very basic core services like maternity care or mental health care. Um, these things could all disappear if the Senate votes for the bill. Now, uh, to the best of your ability, um, just the preliminary reading of, of the House legislation, who, in your view, stands to benefit from this legislation? Which groups and which groups uh, will probably be most hurt? So the group that stands to benefit the most is people who are wealthy. The bill includes not just tax credits for relatively wealthy people who buy health insurance, Uh, but also includes some tax-related provisions that would cut taxes for people who make, uh, you know, more than $200,000. The people who lose are uh, most of us, um, and particularly people who are low-income. 
Uh, the Affordable Care Act grants some very generous subsidies to people who uh, have incomes uh, just above the poverty level. Um, and the subsidies are also on a sliding scale so if, that if you live in a place where health insurance is more expensive, you'll get a bigger subsidy to keep your plan affordable. The health care tax credits in the Republican bill are a flat amount. So if you live somewhere that's got fairly low health care costs, like I do here in Washington, D.C., uh, health care would be relatively affordable. If you live somewhere like Wyoming or Alaska where costs are very expensive, you could be paying thousands of dollars a year more for coverage. The other big problem is that the bill cuts coverage for Medicaid, which is the program that serves uh, low-income children, adults, uh, mothers and, and pregnant women, uh, and the aged and, and the disabled. Uh, and the Congressional Budget Office in its score of the original version of the bill projected that about 14 million fewer people would have Medicaid by 2026. And if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, since you mentioned Medicaid, that number to be cut, it's over 10-year costs, about $888 billion or something of that nature. Is that correct? That's right. Over $800 billion gets cut out of the Medicaid program. Mm -hmm. And this, again, this is a program that serves some of the uh, most needy people in our society. Now, you also mentioned the, uh, in, the, in the previous legislation that did not pass the House, the uh, Congressional Budget Office. And I was wondering, uh, it seems to me that taking um, this health care vote prior to the Congressional Budget Office report was it, uh, incredibly risky politically, was it not? I think it's more than that. I think it's, I agree, it's you know, risky politically. I th also just think it's plain out irresponsible to vote for a bill without understanding what it would do to the cost in the budget, as well as what it does for people's household budgets and for people's coverage. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office is an independent agency that uh, is there to serve Congress and try to help the legislators figure out what changes to the law would do for uh, our nation's economy, for the federal budget, and uh, in the case of health insurance coverage, how it would change uh, what coverage people have. Uh, in this particular case, uh, the legislators did not wait for an answer from the Congressional Budget Office on how the uh, most up-to-date bill would have uh, affected those things, went ahead and voted for the bill, and uh, you know now their votes are on record, and we still haven't seen the Congressional Budget Office's score yet. Now, I do believe um, that the um, Senate Republican leaders have already stated uh, that they would not take a vote until the CBO report has been uh, made official. I hope so. I think it's it's crucial that we wait and understand what a bill does before we make a decision on uh, what should be done about it. No, no. Now, um, this one of the pieces in this legislation that w that was talked about and was um, highlighted. Wh what exactly are high risk pools? So high risk pools are a way of separating out sicker people and putting them in a separate insurance plan or, you know, what insur in insurance terminology is called a risk pool um, away from everybody else um, who's healthier. So I think one example of this, there's a couple examples. One would be state-established high-risk pools that existed before the Affordable Care Act. So if we go back to a time before the ACA, uh, that was an insurance market where if you didn't have coverage through the government or you didn't have coverage through work, you would go directly to an insurance company and they would ask you about your medical history, they would ask you about what your health status was now, 
And if you had a condition like asthma or, you know, eczema or um, maybe some sort of, uh, you know, previous surgery that you had, even if you'd healed from it, you would get charged more because of your medical history. Now, high-risk pools were supposed to be a solution to that, where if you were someone who might have to pay exorbitant premiums in order to get covered, you could instead buy into this high-risk pool where all the high, the high health cost uh, enrollees would be concentrated and the state would subsidize your care. The problem with high-risk pools is that there was, you know, people who are very unhealthy also cost a lot. Uh, and the funding that states and the federal government provided for high-risk pools was never enough uh, to make that coverage either affordable or accessible to everyone. Um, the Affordable Care Act before the exchanges, uh, you know, what's colloquially known as Obamacare became active, had a transitional program that also used high-risk pools. Uh, that program called the Pre-Existing Condition uh, Insurance Plan, or PSIP, um, was supposed to provide transitional coverage that allowed people with pre-existing conditions to get covered, um, but that was also underfunded. And so in general, what you saw with these high-risk pools was that there were waiting lists, people were excluded uh, because you know, there wasn't enough funding for all of them, people had waiting periods during which uh, crucial conditions uh, and services weren't covered, um, and then the premiums and the deductibles were also very high to the point where this wasn't really an affordable option for most people. Now, as you understand the, the legislation that was currently passed by the House, how would the formation of high-risk pools in that legislation impact the overall cost of health of, of care? I think that's a really good question. It's a question that a lot of us are asking, uh, who are observing the process are asking. I think it's a question that people who voted for the bill should have asked uh, and thought about before they voted for it. And it'll be, you know, should the bill pass, it will be a big question for states because uh, the bill leaves open a lot of options for states. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't give them a lot of funding. Um, so the bill has a few places where it establishes funds that the states could use to mitigate risk in the insurance uh, market. They could do that through high-risk pools. They could do that through some sort of reinsurance-like scheme. Um, but the, the reality is that even if you took every dollar that's in that bill, put it towards a high-risk pool, it still wouldn't be enough um, by the order of hundreds of billions to cover people in the individual and small group markets who have pre-existing conditions. Well, you just recently wrote a piece that, that showed uh, a massive gap between um, the money that's, that, that is available uh, versus the money that's needed, and you sort of break it out in your piece uh, uh, at the Center for American uh, Progress website that there's a huge gap in each state. That's right. So what we did was essentially think about a best-case scenario in the sense that we took a very small slice of the individual non-group markets. Those are people who would buy insurance directly uh, or get it through a small employer. Um, and did the math to figure out how much money would you need to adequately cover 5% of those combined markets. Uh, we estimate that using historical data, it would cost about $300 billion to cover those people. Unfortunately, even if you scrape together all the money in the Affordable Health, uh, sorry, the American Health Care Act, the Republican bill, that only gets you about $138 billion. Um, but again, I think that not many people have thought about the specifics of the bill, and it would be a big question how you could come up with all that money. Um, would you siphon it away from other 
uh, programs that I would think that many of the bill's sponsors think are crucial, uh, like public health or lowering premiums for everybody else. Um, and I think it would be up to the, each of the states to backfill that shortfall in funding. Well, I, I'm obviously not an expert in, 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 in health care overall, but it would seem to me that it's incongruent to have the tax cuts that are in this legislation and still fund these pieces at a, at a level even remotely close to adequate. I, I agree with you on that. I think the that contrast between tax cuts and, you know, tax cuts for the wealthy in particular and cutting health care benefits for lower-income working Americans uh, is the most troubling aspect of the bill. Um, it's hardly fair to call this a health care bill when it's a bill that would cut health care for uh, tens of millions of Americans and uh, erode the quality of health care for those who remain uninsured, sorry, who do remain insured, I mean. Now, now wasn't um, high, the, the high-risk pools as they now appear in this legislation uh, essential to get the, um, how they identify as the Freedom Caucus on board for their support? Right, so this was the second time we had seen the bill come to the floor of the House of Representatives. Uh, the first time around, uh, it was withdrawn before a vote was ever taken. That was back in March. The second round, we saw a deal struck between House Republican leadership with moderates and also with the Freedom Caucus. And the two pieces of the bill that got them on board was one amendment, uh, a revision to the bill that would have allowed states to waive protections for people with pre-existing conditions. How this would have worked is that if anybody had a gap in coverage, as millions of Americans do each year, and someone with that gap in coverage went to the individual market, they could be charged more based on health status. Um, the second amendment tried to make up for that, uh, uh, undoing that protection, I think in a, in a very inadequate way, but um, it threw some additional money at the idea of um, either high-risk pools or, or putting money towards mitigating those extra costs for people with pre-existing conditions. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Emily G. of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. about the recent uh, health care legislation passed uh, by the House of Representatives. Um, Emily, let me, if I may, uh, how would you respond um, to uh, a representative from Idaho, um, Raul Labrador's claim that nobody dies because they don't have access to health care? Just that's how would you respond to that, a statement like that? So I think healthcare is something that's very personal. I know that all of, you know, I think each of our families or, or each of our friends probably has a story about how um, healthcare has made a difference in their lives. Um, and I think healthcare is in the U.S. Health insurance is the way that we get access to the healthcare system. Um, I absolutely think that health insurance is vital for um, both life and the quality of life. Uh, you know, there are a variety of studies out there, but some of the the most studied um, aspects of the connection between health insurance and mortality have been some studies on uh, Medicaid expansion. And researchers um, at Harvard and elsewhere have found that indeed, when you expand Medicaid and that is give you know additional health and uh, expand health insurance toward people who um, you know didn't previously have it, um, you do find a reduction in all-cause mortality. So. Um, 
I think you know that's one example of how on a sort of population level scale you do see that health insurance um, improves people's uh, the duration of people's life and not just the quality of it. And now, 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 I'm going to have you respond to the second part because later, uh, Representative Labrador posted on Facebook uh, that hospitals uh, are required by law to treat patients in need of emergency care, regardless of their ability to pay, and that the House-sponsored bill does not change that. How does that qualify or change his previous statement, or does it make any make any kind of impact? So I think that's a, a commonly misunderstood law. This is, relates to a law that's called EMTALA, um, and the gist of it is that uh, it's federal law that if you show up to an emergency room, um, the emergency uh, department there needs to stabilize you. Um, so if you come in, you know, uh, you know, bleeding from some accident or uh, you've been shot, they have to take care of you to the point where um, you could then walk out there, walk outside and live. Um, but that's not a, that's no way to run a healthcare system. Um, you know, there are many people in the U.S. who suffer from chronic disease. Um, preventive care improves the quality of our lives. Um, these are not things that you know are or should be treated in an emergency department. Um, and I think you know we should all have access to affordable care, not just an emergency department um, that creates you know, a strain on people's pocketbooks. It also uh, creates a strain on hospitals. We've seen that in states where Medicaid did get, did get expanded by the states, um, the amount of uncompensated care provided by hospitals dropped dramatically. Um, as, as, I, as I recall, uh, uh, candidate Trump um, during the campaign promised to cover everyone, uh, protect Medicaid from cuts, and replace the Affordable Care Act with um, – uh, I, I don't know, was it bigly, was it terrific, whatever kind of coverage he said, it was. everybody's going to be covered. Now, obviously, the legislation that you've articulated uh, emanating from the House doesn't achieve those goals. I, I guess my question to you, if, if, if there was no um, uh, exuberance to replace and re to repeal and replace, rather, the Affordable Care Act, what would you like to see done to the Affordable Care Act that, that would improve it for the, for, for the lives of many Americans? Sure. So I think there are a couple of places where even within the current structure of the Affordable Care Act, we haven't seen it implemented as intended. Uh, we've seen, you know, both federal lawmakers and state lawmakers uh, put up roadblocks to implementation, probably mostly for political gain. Um, I'll give you two examples. One is Medicaid. Um, states were given, uh, actually in the original ACA, states were supposed to expand Medicaid to low-income childless adults. Um, Medicaid in most states uh, originally just served low-income kids, uh, pregnant women, um, and sometimes uh, low-income parents, but not childless adults. And so what the Affordable Care Act did is it said uh, the federal government, government would pay entirely for expansion to this new population of uh, childless adults, um, and never less than 90% of the funding would come from the federal government in the future. Um, and Many states refuse to take what's essentially to them free money to help low-income people. Um, so states like Florida and Texas uh, did not fully implement the Affordable Care Act because they refused to um, help additional people through Medicaid. Emily, if I may, just uh, if I may just interject right there, because I, I just want to, I think it's racially important. Does that also did that also 
uh, fulfill a, a self-fulfilling prophecy in that see the republic the see the Affordable Care Act doesn't work. Uh, we need to repeal it when you don't when you didn't take that like Medicare piece. Sort of is that is that what happened also, or am, am I mixing my metaphors here? Yes, I think self-fulfilling prophecy is a nice way of putting it. <laughs> um, the Affordable Care Act can't work when you stop it from working, um, and I think it's. Uh, horrific that you know people could be too poor to get some subsidy uh, in these states that refuse to um, you know fill in the gap in, in affordable health coverage by expanding Medicaid. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but continuing on the I think a second area where we saw federal lawmakers opposed to ACA was that there were some programs uh, in the ACA that were intended to help bring down premiums. Uh, for people who directly buy their insurance from from insurance companies, um, and because uh, you know the Congress didn't follow through on funding those programs, um, in turn premiums were higher than they needed to be, um, and that in the end hurts a lot of consumers. Hmm. So I think even you know just following through on what the ACA would uh, was intended to do would be a big first step, um, and then going beyond that, I think there's additional things we can do, particularly. Um, you know, where we're sitting today is, uh, you know, a place where, you know, all of us are unsure whether uh, this repeal bill will pass or not. You know, I certainly hope it won't. Um, but that makes, you know, me nervous, hope, <laughs> probably makes you nervous. Mm -hmm. uh, it certainly makes insurance companies nervous. And if we, uh, you know, if, if folks in Washington don't sort out whether the ACA is going to be um, – enacted and implemented as intended and aren't sure whether it's going to repealed, be repealed, then um, insurers are going to have to raise rates. And that um, you know, raises uh, the amount of tax money that needs to go to subsidies and also raises premiums for people who are actually enrolled in that insurance. Emily G. from the Center for American Progress, I want to thank you for being on the public rally today. Thank you very much. That was Emily G. Stay tuned as we play an interview from earlier this year with Wake Forest Law Professor Michael Curtis. Welcome back. Last week, President Donald Trump signed a religious liberty executive order that some tout as religious bigotry. While the executive order is limited in scope, there is a House bill under consideration that would be far-reaching. I wanted to replay my interview from earlier this year to focus more on the House legislation and its constitutional ramifications with law professor Michael Curtis. Curtis teaches constitutional law at Wake Forest University. Professor Michael Curtis, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Mm -hmm. Let's begin by having you offer a, a distillation of the freedom of religion clause that's in the First Amendment. Yeah. <laughs> yes. See, we start with the easy questions first, sir. That's yeah, how it works. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Well, there, uh, there are two aspects of the uh, religion clause in the First Amendment. One is the free exercise clause, and the other is the guarantee against establishment of religion. And there's some potential tension between the two. The conventional view uh, for much of the Court's history has been that the free exercise deals with the freedom to express religious views, the freedom to, to um, you know, 
know, go to church and that sort of thing. Generally speaking, with some exceptions, it didn't include freedom not to obey generally applicable laws. Uh, so, for instance, I'm a member of New Garden Friends Meeting. Some members of my meeting object to the federal tax system because it funds the military, and they object to funding the military. But they don't get a freedom of religion exemption from the tax law um, because it's contrary to a conscientious religious belief. So that, you know, that has been the view of a closely divided court uh, for some time. There's now, there's now a movement in the other direction, and it's always been there to some extent. And the movement is basically, well, we ought to be able to have freedom for acts as well as religious expression, and and uh, and that's a potential problem. Thomas Jefferson, in his great bill on religious freedom uh, in the Virginia legislature, uh, said the freedom was absolute in terms of being able to express and adhere to religious views, but as to acts, it was time enough for the government to act when the acts interfered with, you know, basic uh, basic functions of the state. But it's it's not a simple division, as you know. Well, I and see, I, I have another easy question for you. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. So now, would you do likewise uh, with the non-controversial Fourteenth Amendment? I'm being very sarcastic when I say non-controversial, of course. Yeah. Well, the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, basically in section one has a couple of basic provisions uh, one is uh, birthright citizenship all people born in the country are citizens of the united states and of the state they reside in and one aspect of birthright citizenship is the right to be treated equally when you go from one state to another uh, then there's in the in the 14th Amendment, there's the Equal Protection Clause, a guarantee basically against state-sponsored state action that discriminates against people. Um, and there's the Due Process Clause, which is interpreted as protecting various liberties as well as procedural due process. So, so the guarantees of the Bill of Rights, as the Supreme Court has interpreted it, apply to the states under the Due Process Clause. And, and due process was something that they carried forward from the Fifth, that was also uh, in the Fifth Amendment, is that correct? It's in the Fifth Amendment, and as the Court interprets the Fifth Amendment now, which limits the federal government, it has an equal protection component that is much like the thrust of the Equal Protection Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. And that is really consistent with the view of some old-time Republicans, um, that the Fifth Amendment, even before the Fourteenth Amendment, guaranteed equal protection of the laws. And uh, with regard to the Fourteenth Amendment, sir, how does the doctrine of incorporation factor? Well, the doctrine of incorporation is the idea that the guarantees of the Bill of Rights are among the liberties or the other view would be the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And the 14th Amendment says that no state can abridge these things. 
the 14th Amendment, in addition to its guarantee of equal protection, says states can't abridge the liberties of citizens of the United States or, uh, if you look at the way the framers thought of it to start with, or many of them, the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And these included, among other basic liberties, the liberties in the Bill of Rights. One of the big problems before the Civil War was that the right to free speech and actually uh, free exercise of religion in terms of speaking on religious topics was uh, suppressed in the South for people who were opposed to slavery. Um, and Republicans couldn't campaign in the South before the Civil War. Um, so, so one purpose of the 14th Amendment was to nationalize the civil liberties and the Bill of Rights. The Supreme Court took a long time getting around to doing that, but it eventually did. Now, is incorporation something that is uh, widely accepted, or is it selectively? How, how has it been applied since the ratification of the 14th Amendment? Yes, well, initially, um, the court rejected any application over the dissent of some of the justices, like Justice John Marshall Harlan I. Uh, eventually, it began to selectively apply some of these guarantees to the states. And by now, virtually all of the guarantees have been applied to the uh, states. Some have not yet. The right to civil jury trial has not yet been applied and so on. But grand jury indictment has not yet been applied. But nearly all the rest. I'll stay with this for one more question. Would that be, uh, would a good example of incorporation uh, not being applied and then being applied would be the difference between, say, Plessy v. Ferguson in 1893 and Brown versus Board of Education in 1954? Would that be the difference? Well, that would be an example of the Equal Protection Clause Okay. and the understanding of the Equal Protection Clause. So Plessy's understanding was that equal protection and due process didn't prevent segregation based on race. And Brown's understanding in Loving versus Virginia, the interracial marriage case, was that it did. It, uh, the framers of the 14th Amendment adhered to certain principles. And they thought of due process and equal protection as in including a principle against irrational discriminations or caste systems. To start with, not everybody understood that racial segregation promoted a caste system. But by the time of Brown versus Board of Education and Loving versus Virginia, it was pretty clear, and it was a caste system that affected all sorts of things, uh, rights in all sorts of directions, including the criminal justice system. And so now we get to some more easy questions. Um, so so when we talk about um, this proposed legislation, the First Amendment Defense Act, do you see a potential conflict between the First and Fourteenth Amendment should that be legislation become law? Yeah, well, I understand it's being proposed for states as well as being proposed for the federal government. The Fourteenth Amendment deals directly with states and, of course, the uh, the Due Process Clause with its equal protection component uh, deals with the federal government. Yeah, is there a tension? Yes, there's a, a, a big tension. Um, I think one thing to note 
is that we think of the courts as being, you know, the creators and guarantors of our liberties and that sort of thing. But to a great extent, progress on civil rights and racial equality came from the Congress. In the Civil Rights Bill of, eight, of 1964 that outlawed discrimination in public accommodations, in the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and, and others. Um, the... Uh, the biggest tension of this bill is is against the principle of e equal treatment that was accepted in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And the question is basically, should that principle apply to uh, to people who are gay? The uh, and if you have a law like this that says basically you can withhold any uh, you, know, you can't withhold any federal grant, contract, subcontract, cooperative agreement, and so on, because the people object, the people getting the grant object to gay people because they have gay sex or object to gay people who are married. This is, this is problematic because it would deal with all sorts of government action. So the government often acts through contracts with individuals. You know, they may hire corporations to do work for the government. They may, uh, they may have other groups that uh, they choose to carry on government functions, such as, for instance, gas, private prisons these days. But, uh, but as to all of those, it seems to me the suggestion is that if the contractor or, well, let me back up. Often they're, they're not, uh, there's not a federal law like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that protects gay people against discrimination in housing, employment, uh, and, and so on. There are, there are guarantees like that act, expansions of that principle of equality, in a number of states, and then a number of states like North Carolina don't have those guarantees. One thing governments do is in their contracts, they make provisions that you can't discriminate against people on certain irrational caste-based, uh, in certain irrational caste-based ways. For example, often it would say you can't discriminate based on race, religion, national origin, sex, and that sort of thing. So, and of course, if you're a government contractor, you're also bound by the Civil Rights Act of '64. But so that can be expanded by government rules saying, okay, we also protect gay people against being denied employment by government contractors or uh, denied, you know, any of these other benefits that might be privately provided uh, to some extent under government aegis or government cooperation. Um, I guess that's, that's the big issue, because as, as the federal government has not expanded protection to gay people, and indeed, you know, hasn't been able to do much of anything because it's so deadlocked, um, the states, at least some states, have expanded these protections. And other states have said, you know, we don't want this sort of protection. If we have a, if we have a contractor who we hire to do state business, we don't want any understanding that they can't discriminate against gay people because they have 
uh, gay sex, so they can't, uh, presumably, or, or that you know they can't discriminate against gay people because they're married. Actually, it's a bigger problem than it used to be, because there was no visual detection device for gayness. So ordinarily, you couldn't just look at somebody and say, well, gee, this is a gay person. Aha, I will discriminate against them. <laughs> but now with gay marriage, you know, it's, it's out in the open. And also with gay people coming out of the closet, it's, it's much more in the open. Mm-hmm. And it's really connected with another basic civil liberty. And that basic civil liberty is the right of speech and association. So to the extent that discrimination keeps people from feeling safe in expressing their views on issues like uh, homosexuality or gay marriage or whatever, it has a chilling effect on speech and association. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with constitutional law professor Michael Curtis at uh, Wake Forest School of Law regarding the proposed First Amendment Defense Act. So, Professor Curtis, in the context of the First, uh, First Amendment Defense Act, what would exercising one's religion mean? Well, the, the Act says that it, the First Amendment Defense Act says it includes both the uh, belief and uh, action. Um, the uh, discriminatory action uh, is uh, discriminating against a person because of beliefs or convictions, uh, including federal government action to alter. But as I read it, it prohibits also, I'm looking for the uh, prohibits the federal government from taking discriminatory action against a person on the basis such person believes or acts in accordance with a religious belief. So if you have a, a federal contract and there is a, a, uh, a regulation saying that you can't discriminate based on, against people based on uh, uh, gayness, for instance, then the effect of this would be all you have to do is play your trump card of, well, this is my religious view. Therefore, I get to discriminate against gay people because the Act particularly talks about marriage or uh, sex outside of heterosexual marriage. That sort of uh, runs counter-historically because it seems to me uh, that this expands the notion of religious freedom in that it becomes something that goes with me into the public square uh, with my ability to use your word, trump those who don't share my beliefs. Yes, or whose whose lifestyle doesn't meet with my approval. Right. Yes, abs- absolutely. That's that's what it does, and that is. It's also dubious, I think, under the equal protection clause and the birthright citizenship equality thing, because this selects out for discrimination by these people for protected discrimination, just gays who are married. Or gays. It doesn't, you know, if there is this right to uh, to uh, believe or act in accordance with your beliefs, religious belief, and discriminate. Well, then, why wouldn't it? 
why wouldn't it also cover all sorts of other things? Discriminating against people because they're Buddhists or discriminating against people because they're the wrong color or whatever. seems to me really the, the model for understanding this issue should be the should be the uh, Civil Rights Act and its its decision to outlaw discrimination based on race, religion, national origin, or sex. And the same principles ought to apply to protecting gay people. And there's some some areas where it could be reasonable to make some exceptions. But in terms of this, this protects any corporation. Um, where the corporation announces, well, this is our religious belief, and therefore we don't hire gay people, or we don't uh, we don't hire gay people who are married, or we don't allow gay people who are married to have uh, their spouse covered under the health insurance policy or whatever. And couldn't you also extend that belief to, say, uh, single mothers or, or or unwed heterosexual couples? If you if you have that belief, couldn't that also be extended to, to those parties as well? Yes. Uh, I'm looking at this. Uh, a religious belief or moral conviction that marriage should be recognized as a union of one man and one woman or sexual relations are properly reserved to such a marriage. Yes, yeah, so it does seem to me... Uh, you could discriminate against a woman who had a child out of wedlock, for instance. You could, under this, you could discriminate against heterosexual couples who were uh, living together but not married, um, and so on. So yes, it's. I mean, it potentially gives all sorts of opportunities for discrimination, and it does not seem to me. Although obviously, one of the focuses of it or animus is. Uh, Gays doesn't seem to be limited to gays. Well, that's sort of the the slippery slope. It, 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 on paper, it, it, it's focused on one group, but once you open up that Pandora's box, I mean, who knows where it could go based on whatever one's particular interpretation of of, of uh, re- religion might be. Yeah, well, the one interpretation, the access you can have is in marriage is or should be recognized as a union of one man and one woman, and sexual relations are properly reserved to such marriage. So all, you know, the things I talked about for heterosexuals are not a slippery slope. (laughs) They've uh, they've incorporated that slope into the (laughs) act. Uh, Well, you you mentioned corporations, and I want to jump to that for a moment, if I could, because the, the, the act specifically says... It defines a person as any person, regardless of religious affiliation, including corporations and other entities, regardless of for-profit or non-profit status. Now, that seems to me to to hearken on the language found in rulings like, say, Citizens United and the Hobby Lobby decision. Well, it is true that corporations have been uh, have, give, have been given, say, and Citizens United have been given. Been given broad free speech rights that they did not have historically in this country um, until the uh, Supreme Court decided Citizens United. Um, and uh, and Hobby Lobby basically holds that a corporation, at least a closely held corporation, can have a right to free exercise of religion and so on. The question is 
what that'll mean is is obviously going to be going to be coming up. But yes, so in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, for instance, the idea was that of course you could reach these uh, corporations in the pub that entered the public commercial sphere and dealt with the public and so on. You could say there's certain things you can't do. Historically, uh, how has the court negotiated any potential conflicts that may arise between amendments? Like we, we talked about the First Amendment. Maybe this might be some tension created with the 14th Amendment. Can you think of any cases where the courts had to negotiate something of that manner? How they negotiate? When there's uh, conflict maybe between two competing amendments. Or two competing interpretations. Yes, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, yes, sir. Uh, yeah, yes, you're right. Yeah, interpretation, yeah. yes. Yeah, well, uh, I guess the First Amendment guarantee of free speech and extending it to corporations, that was sort of a conflict within mm-hmm. that amendment. There's, um, for example, if you had a statute that said ministers can't preach against uh homosexuality or sex out of marriage or that sort of thing that would be a clear conflict with the uh, with the first amendment mm-hmm. there would also be an equality interest in not having people express anti-equality ideas but it's and in europe they you know they're much more likely to have that approach maybe outside the minister context but for ordinary people but in this country, the First Amendment is pretty clear. You can express ideas that many would find reprehensible and bigoted, um, and uh, and equal protection does not keep you from doing it. One thing, equal protection, of course, is uh, is a limit on the action of states. And when individuals are speaking, they are not state actors, but. Yeah, but if if you had the legislature saying, well, we're going to enforce equality and we're going to enforce equality by shutting up people who are critics of equality, Um, passing laws against, you know, defamation of a group or that sort of thing, there you'd have that sort of tension. You had it in uh, the case of Boharness versus Illinois, which was uh, a case about group libel. And initially, the court's action was to hold that group libel is something the states can prohibit. So they could prohibit uh, things that statements that show lack of virtue in any uh, you know group of people based on religion and similar race and similar things. I think later decisions of the court have. Uh, have moved away from that, but Bo Harness is still on the books, and is it's an example of a tension between equal protection and uh, and free speech. Mm-hmm. I'm 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 being facetious here, but it seems to me one of the troubling aspects for me as I as I read this legislation, I'll have you respond. Is it is it if uh, Acme Donut House, um, if the proprietor, and we'll call him Mr. Wiley Coyote. If he identifies as Christian, then he is covered under this potential First Amendment Defense Act. Yeah, let me. Um, um, 
Yeah, but it's it's not just Christians, although... Well, I'm going to use that as an example, but yes, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, Buddhists or Muslims right. or all sorts of other religions could... Uh, if, you know, they the person owns or controls the corporation, they could... They could say, well, you know, this this violates my religious beliefs. And then that right there, going back to your pre- previous answer, that really flies, that sort of thinking at least, flies in the face of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It does, and it flies in the face of this broad tendency of American law and constitutional law to extend the protections of the law and equality to more and more groups of people. Um, First, uh, men who uh, didn't have a certain amount of property were still allowed to vote. And then black people were given the right to vote and equal protection. And then women, and yeah. And, yeah, so it, it goes against the sort of the expanding uh, ethical aspirations that are revealed in the Constitution. Well, if, 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 if you, the timeline you just offered... Um, starts, what, 1788, and women didn't vote till 1920. So sometimes those extensions take a while. Boy, that's the truth, yes, <laughs> for sure, yes. Um, but it seems to me, just you know, given our history, that uh, whenever you have legislation that opens the door, I'm not going to even say this legislation does it, but it opens the door to discrimination. That's never been a good model for this country. Well, I'd say this this legislation, now this is my view, I understand, and you're not expressing this view. My view is that this legislation does open the door in certain areas for discrimination. It opens the door in areas where you would have either a... um, state law, which could be preempted by a federal law, not this particular one, but but one like it. Or you could have state laws, which, uh, which basically deny the ability of people in the state to get the benefit of the equality guarantees of the state constitution or the state law. So, so in that sense, I, I think if you go back to the... Um but note this comes up for people like federal contractors. Federal contractors get to discriminate in all these ways if they say it's religiously motivated. Yeah, well, that, that that sounds like a very dangerous precedent, though. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't I don't like it because it's it's a basic assault on dignity. Segregation was an assault on dignity. Um, and had all sorts of collateral effects. The idea that you can discriminate against uh, heterosexuals who are unmarried but living together and having sex, or heterosexuals where you know the the woman had a child out of wedlock, or gay people, um, that you can discriminate against all these people. Uh, based on you saying, well, this is my religious view, and my religious view trumps with reference to federal contracts and that sort of thing. Any, uh, but, but hasn't the... Any, 
I'm going to say, order has, that would have protected the people. But hasn't the court, um, I say at least post-1868 uh, with the ratification of the 14th Amendment, hasn't the court uh, gradually moved toward, if there's an issue between equality and whatever the other thing was, in this case, a discrimination equality, hasn't the court tended to uh, side with, on the equality piece? I, mean, I know it took some, I mean, grudgingly, but hasn't that been a, cons- uh, a, a rather recent consistency? Well, with reference, say, to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the courts did not recognize that you could say, gee, I have religious views, therefore I get to discriminate against uh, people based on color or religion or national origin or that sort of thing, and who I serve in my covered uh, commercial establishments. Um, so... Yes, to that extent, that's that's right. Um, you know, it seems to me, and uh, in a larger sense, um, in the few minutes we have left, it seems to me that part of the, I guess, part of the struggle, because I understand that this legislation is is, is in in many regards in response to uh, Obergefell versus I think Obergefell versus Hodges, that gay marriage. Yeah, but even before that, you had you know things, yeah. And and remember that I'm going to go back to Loving versus Virginia sure. for a moment. Sure, interracial marriage. Sixty-seven, case. right? The big objection to that was a religious objection, and the big objection to integration. One big objection was a religious objection. So historians have done all sorts of really uh, detailed and interesting work on the idea was if you have integration of schools and so on then the next thing you'll do is have interracial marriage. And if you have interracial marriage, this is against God's word. And uh, that was the reason, you know, for instance, uh, a historian found most people who are writing the governor of Virginia to oppose integration would cite. Mm-hmm. So this idea that, you know, certain sexual relations, uh, you, you should be able to discriminate against people based on certain sexual relations or potential sexual relations. Is is not a brand new idea. Well, in your in your uh, context uh, as a constitutional law professor, do, when you hear um, uh, constitutional uh, Supreme Court decisions debated, isn't there, too, in your view, is there too much emphasis placed on the actual outcome and not enough on the constitutional concept in which the ruling was handed down? I, I, yeah, I think too often people don't focus on the basic principle behind the constitutional guarantee. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely so. And I think this is troubling because this picks out a particular group of people to be denied what otherwise might be the protection of federal administrative rules. Um, protecting them from discrimination and deprives them of that protection. For anybody who says, I'm doing it because of my religion, anybody who's a contractor or subcontractor or whatever. Professor Michael Curtis, Wake Forest School of Law. Sir, I, I really thank you for being on the Public Morality today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it, it, was, it was definitely our pleasure, sir. Thank you. That was Michael Curtis. That interview originally aired on March 7th.
Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. I have always marveled at those who tout their commitment to the Constitution without the burden of embracing its inconveniences. Too much of our constitutional understanding places an over-reliance on a desired outcome. These constitutional frustrations circumvent the need for immediate gratification. Our desire for a particular outcome is too linear for a document as expansive as the Constitution. Simply stated, the Constitution giveth and it taketh away. We can ill afford to be pacified by reactionary impulses to alter the Constitution so that it conforms to our desires. Some talk their allegiance to the Constitution based on the original ten of the founders. Void of nuance, this could be considered a noble commitment, but it omits, however, the unstated goals of the Constitution were originally applied to white male landowners. Most Americans living today would not be included in the original document, just as the majority were excluded in 1789. This is a key reason why the framers were concerned with the rights of the minority. As much as it was far-reaching and a novel concept, it was also fueled by self-preservation. More important, it's unrealistic to believe that an evolving nation could remain restricted by a worldview that no longer exists. That doesn't mean we forego free speech. But what does free speech look like in our 21st century technological age? What should become of civil liberties in a post-9-11 world shrouded by prospect of terrorism? As we move forward, wouldn't it require that the country evolve its understanding of what constitutes a violation of the Fourth Amendment ban on illegal searches and seizures? Moreover, we can be assured that pluralism in its myriad forms will demand that we explore new definitions for civil rights. This, however, is not a call for a living constitution. That is a specious argument that truncates the legitimacy of the text with the imperfections of the artisans. The Constitution cannot be what we simply want it to be in the moment. Throughout its history, America has been challenged to maintain the basis of the constitutional inheritance while keeping pace with an ever-changing world. Why would now be any different? Isn't that the path toward a more perfect union? The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is PublicMorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which is located on iTunes. I want to thank my guests, Emily G. of the Center for American Progress and Michael Curtis of Wake Forest University, the Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.